Welcome back to The Socialist Shelf, the podcast that cares about two things. That's good literature and changing the world. I'm Jacob, and I'm here with Joss. What's up? And uh, this week, we've got uh, a first, not our first guest. We had uh, Mason on a few weeks back, but our first guest, our first guest with both of us present. So I, I uh, is, is a fellow by the name of Trent. He is an educator, friend of mine from college, a real uh, a real Vonnegut head. Uh, he's, a, he's a real fan of Vonnegut, so we wanted to have him on the show to talk something Vonnegut. And what better to talk about than Slaughterhouse Five? Trent, I'll let you introduce yourself a little more here. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm Trent. I've <laughs> I've known Jacob for quite a while now. Um, a friend of the long time, first time, long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't have a background as cool as being a dirt mage, um, but I am very <laughs> you excited. Do. I am a Vonnegut head. I have I have obtained a few Vonnegut fun facts in preparation for this, and uh, I'm very excited to talk about one of my favorite books. There's cool. a lot maybe of you can, maybe you can explain to me what the hell I just read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can do that. There's a lot of Vonnegut fun facts, and a lot of his fun facts are also like pretty sad facts too. That's the mm-hmm. that's the thing about Vonnegut. <laughs> it, it, it really interlaces. Oh man, I, I actually ahead of this not only read the book but i watched the movie of slaughterhouse five 1972 was surprisingly good and i read uh man without a country his 2005 sort of memoir so i feel very i'm stuffed full of like vonnegut vonnegut info right now coming into this i'm I'm very excited and uh this crosses another one off the shelf if you look at the cover of our podcast shelf art slaughterhouse five i believe is on there so that crosses another shelf book off uh that that's uh so that that's a that's a few that we've covered now we're, we're, we'll we'll get to all of them eventually i'm sure capital included cap are we gonna do a capital episode <laughs> it's gonna know, happen we, it's one of uh, these days do we do we have uh, it's not really it's not really a novel but we can we can like novelize capital <laughs> give that a shot um yeah 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 okay well we will um i'll get into you know vonnegut's backstory in a second but before um i do that uh, I just wanted to ask, like, you know, everyone here can talk about what their background with Vonnegut and with the novel is, you know, starting with uh, Trent, starting with our guest, guest first. Yeah, okay, well, that's quite a privilege. Um, <laughs> yeah, Slaughterhouse-Five was my first Vonnegut. I read it in late 2020. Um, since then, uh, Vonnegut, as like anyone who picks up Vonnegut or uh, has read Vonnegut will know, is like very easy to read. Um, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. actually thought that Slaughterhouse-Five, going back to it, I found it to be a little more in depth of most of his books but most of his books are like a you sit down and can read it in like a sitting yeah um very enjoyable i would usually try to put vonnegut's in between uh longer books are going to take me a while i would you know take them take a moment to uh enjoy it uh, i definitely have my tier list of vonnegut's but one thing that i will say after reading uh, quite a few now that i really enjoyed going back to slaughterhouse five was the idea of like what i'm calling the vonniverse which is that mm-hmm. Vonnegut definitely has like his own expanded universe of characters. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was surprised how much of that was in uh, this book. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that, but yeah, you know, honestly, it is weird to have a, like a cinematic universe for uh, what they're like, you know, with inconsistencies. Um, but yeah, it, it's been really good. I would definitely recommend pretty much any Vonnegut book. I don't think I've read one and been like, that was a waste of time. I would highly recommend. Yeah, I think actually we read it around the same time when we first both read it. Um, yeah, I believe so. I think I was, the first time I read it, 
read it uh, was listening to the audiobook delivering pizzas, and it was a uh, James Franco. <laughs> James Franco has a reading of it. No, um, really, on Audible. <laughs> and I uh, and I listened to it. Oh man, just to hear James Franco say "puta wheat" is it's, 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 it's something else. Of really, all people highly recommend. Uh, but no, yeah, Joss, what about what about your background with it? Oh well, I am I am definitely the uh, the novice in our uh, intrepid trio here. I the last Vonnegut that I read was Mother Nights back in high school. But this is actually appropriate for this occasion because. Um, uh, our protagonist, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Howard Campbell, does show up later in this uh, in this novel. Howard yes. Campbell being the uh, the Mother Night guy, um, and then he pays a visit to the uh, to the uh, prisoners of war. That's the term that I'm looking for. So yeah, it's by happy coincidence I've I've had a brush with this mythology before. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd call anything about Mother Night a happy coincidence. That book makes me so sad. Um, <laughs> I was surprised of all the of all the Vonnegut's to have read previously. I am surprised this Mother Night. Mm, it's good. I mean, yeah, it is good. Uh, they they all are, as far as I know. But um, mm-hmm. the uh, yeah, it's an interesting tie, and it's also interesting that Mother Night came first uh, as well. And then he was like, "I'm going to put." But yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get into Howard Campbell's appearance. But it is interesting, an interesting tie tie over for sure. Um, and also makes his like one like uh, he has an essay about like America in it that makes it hit a little better when you know he's not actually a Nazi. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I digress. Let's talk about Kurt Vonnegut himself. You know, uh, you know, it's it, Kurt Vonnegut is an author that when you say his name, it's like he's he's pretty widely known. Um, you know, he's one of the most famous American authors, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Um, just, uh, you know, really a. Uh, uh, a 20th century gem of an author right up there with, you know, people he's considered up there in the canon with people like Mark Twain, which is like his great hero and, and, and others. But, uh, you know, just to give him some background on him, he was born in 1922, Indianapolis. Um, and to just say a lot of this book is pretty biographical for him, autobiographical, the war parts specifically. Um, and he was the descendant of German immigrants, but, uh, 1920s, a lot of anti-German sentiment coming out of the First World War. His family doesn't really teach him anything about his roots. He doesn't have much culture. He says himself he feels um, disconnected from culture, doesn't get taught German, doesn't get taught the German background. His parents just really want him to be an all-American boy, uh, which he calls, I believe, anti-culture. Um, he, he believes like it's just culture-less. And uh, yeah, he even talks about in his book, you know, his memoir, Man Without a Country, that he feels like, you know, without a country. Um, he really feels like he got his um, his cultural background and his like ethical education from uh, Ida Young, who was a black housekeeper that uh, lived with them for a time. He said she was his like moral and cultural basis uh, for life. He said that her her influence on him was really the basis for like him loving art and stuff, even though his family were artists to some extent, his father did. Uh, he was an architect. His mother did like to write. Uh, he felt like the connection a lot more strongly there, but he had a weird relationship with his parents. His dad is this very withdrawn guy and his mother, uh, very nice as a, when they were young, but she owned a brewery and after uh, prohibition hit, lost everything, became just this incredibly bitter woman uh, who pursued wealth to an insane degree, hated his father, behaved abusively. And uh, Vonnegut describes his relationship with his mother like, quote, sulfuric acid. So uh, yeah, mommy issues right off the bat in a pretty crazy way. Um, the, he's not missing words there. Um, 
But, you know, he uh, he became an artist, learned to write in a school for a school paper in high school during the Depression. Uh, he called writing fun and easy. And he said, quote, it turned out I could just write better than a lot of people. Each person has something they can do easily and can't imagine why everybody else has so much trouble doing it, end quote. Um, so it was just easy to him. It's what came naturally. And there is something in his style that feels very natural, um, though, though he does you know, labor quite a bit. There is something in it that feels very effortless, I think. Um, after that, he went to Cornell and just was a terrible student. Um, he was trying to study. Um, he was trying to study, um, I believe, something in the sciences, uh, mechanical engineering, I think, because his brother told him not to get a humanities degree because it was a waste of time. But he was terrible at it. Um, all he cared about was his uh, about his school paper job. But in his school paper, uh, he wrote just criticizing the United States, like imperial projects, got basically kicked out of Cornell over that and his poor grades. Um, and it was World War Two time. So he joined the military and uh, we'll get into basically the details of his like military life. But um, yeah, he was uh, he was deployed into, you know, World War Two. He fought at uh, he fought at the Battle of the Bulge and was became a prisoner of war, um, notably just before going over to World War Two, just to just to heighten the tragedy vonnegut um was visiting his mother one last time on mother's day and found her uh dead having killed herself uh wow. shortly on mother's day shortly before uh leaving for world war ii so like you know really deeply marked by tragedy um yeah so and, like i said sorry, a tragedy ahead. a tragedy of the sorts that like you know it's very literary in nature right you know it's you ironic have... yeah Right. The, our, yeah, that is that is really the uh, the word for it. Right. Because you have you have such things happen in the book and we'll get into that. But, yeah, you know, you could not write a better. Well, not better, but like you you could not write a more ironic um, um, tragedy than finding your mother dead on Mother's Day. It's a very Vonnegut thing to, mm -hmm. to write, really. You know what I mean? Uh, but, so it goes. <laughs> yeah, so it goes. <laughs> That's going to stick with me. So it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Man, I hear James Franco say it every time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So yeah, does he does he say like? Sorry, this is a digression. Does he you're, say no, it with like fine. with like different inflections? Yeah, like if it's okay. So like if it's in the middle of a uh, like paragraph, it's like okay, this person died, so it goes, you know. And then and then once in a while, like he's like he just he just uh, uses it more as like a punctuation, like more emphasis on it, just. Yeah, so that's good. that's more or less that's more or less how I recall. He has like a sort of a way he says it, but he says it with different like tempo and like it's a pretty good it's a pretty good audiobook. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. You have to have that cadence in mind. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. But yeah, um, you know, we'll get into the details. But he was there at Dresden. What this book is about: the bombing of Dresden. The you know the biggest uh, you know the biggest bombing in the history of Europe. He was there. Uh, you know, after that point, he was, uh, you know, saved by some Soviets who came in um, and got the Purple Heart for frostbite, which he always joked about. And he said, America gave me he said it gave me uh, the least of its honors for frostbite, which mm. is kind of mean calling the Purple Heart the least of its honors. But that's just that's how he talks. <laughs> um, <laughs> married his girlfriend, Jane Cox, after coming back from uh, from the war and uh, got or studied for his master's in anthropology at the University of Chicago on the GI Bill um, and worked as a reporter. And he did not get his master's, not because he didn't do well in his classes, but because the university rejected every thesis idea. And he eventually got mad and just said, I'm not doing a thesis if you don't like my first couple ideas. They would <laughs> give him an honorary thesis 25 years later, 
uh, or honorary masters 25 years later, citing Cat's Cradle as uh, as sufficient as a thesis. Um, But uh, he went on to do uh, uh, technical writing for General Electric. His brother got him a job, but he started having freelance success as he described it. If you look at what those freelance success was and why he quit his job at GE, it was he sold two stories and he quit. Like, really, it's pretty, pretty incredible how quickly he was just like, yeah, no, I'm done. I'm not technical writing anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's very funny to describe t- selling two stories as success, but that is he he quit his he quit his day job after selling two stories. But it turned out it uh it kind of worked out um, because Player Piano comes out right after that, 1952. Um, and it does well, um, though critics dismiss it as sort of a silly science fiction novel despite its themes of things like anti-McCarthyism, criticizing industrialism. Um, but Vonnegut dismissed his critics saying, quote, no one can simultaneously, apparently, be a respectable writer and understand how a refrigerator works, end quote. Um, he did not appreciate that science, him as a science fiction writer was kind of uh, not respected very much by certain critics. Um, but he got on by short stories for a while, but he was going broke, used what money he had to open an automobile dealership, a Saab dealership. It went bankrupt within a year. Um, at this time, he's already got three kids. Then his sister dies, and he adopted her kids, three more, and was taking care of a seventh. So just really not doing very well for himself financially on top of having this huge family. But uh, he keeps writing. Eventually, Sirens of Titan makes a little mo- money, Mother Night. But then Cat's Cradle comes out, and it really smashes to success and he's seen as a very successful writer at this point though uh he has not reached his greatest heights yet um and he still is actually not doing very well financially until the iowa writers workshop offer him a job and he said it was like rescuing a drowning man when they gave him a job because he said he was thinking about just quitting writing at that point um at this point, then, the Guggenheim Fellowship in 1967 funds his travels to Europe because he says he's writing a book about Dresden. It took him a few years, but in 1969, he released the book, this book we're going to talk about today, and it made him one of the best-known authors in the country overnight. Slaughterhouse-Five was this smash success. After that, he was guest teaching at Harvard, City College, New York City, Indiana. He was you know, more successful than ever. He was a household name. He was making a ton of money. He sold the film rights. I mean, the guy was doing really, really well. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of zoom through the rest of his life really quickly. And I, and, and then I'll, I'll shut up for a little while. Cause I know I've been monologuing, but, uh, want to get you all the details here. Um, he actually had a split with his wife, Jane, after this, because she converted to Christianity. Um, and he had a problem with that. Um, he was a very devout atheist. Um, and she wanted him to be a Christian and he left, he left her over it. They, they split. It was a pretty messy split. Uh, uh, though they remained friends to the end of her life. Um, he became dependent on the drug Ritalin for a time after that, got on and off of it, uh, you know, drank more and more frequently and uh, basically had to have uh, like psychotherapy very often to sort of get by, dealt with severe depression, never got over that for the rest of his life. His divorce really messed him up in a pretty severe way. Um, but he did marry again to Jill Jill Crements, a photographer in 1979, and adopted another child with her. So a lot of children. Um, and had a resurgence in his career. He got some juice from the Island Tree School District versus Pico case, Supreme Court case that decided whether or not the book Slaughterhouse Five could be banned from schools. Um, he was the school district was saying his book was anti-American, which he basically said, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he got like a lot of counterculture juice from that. Um, 
the court actually ruled in Vonnegut's favor or the favor of Slaughterhouse-Five. And since then, the Kurt Vonnegut Library has given free copies of Slaughterhouse-Five to any district that tries to ban the book to anyone who lives in the districts. Brilliant. Um, he never escaped depression. Like I said, he did attempt suicide in 1984, uh, fortunately survived it. Um, and also that was a, he kind of, you see basically him slowing down in his prolificness at this point as well. Uh, his last novel is Time Quake in 1997, uh, but he kept writing essays. His final book was Man Without a Country, his sort of memoir, 2005. Uh, and at this point, you know, it's got some hope in it, but it is a very depressed book. He's a, he's a sad man, and a lot of people around him described him as a pretty hopeless guy by the end of his life. Um, he died of a fall in his home in 2007, age 84. He jokingly complained in his last interview that he was going to sue the government because cigarette cart, uh, cigarette, um, packages have things on the side that say they'll kill you. And he says, I've been smoking them since I was 16 and they still won't kill me. Um, <laughs> and he still hadn't died of them. So one of his last jokes he ever told was that he was going to sue the government because he was going to die of a fall instead of dying of, uh, smoking cigarettes, which was his intention. Um, he has since had institutes, libraries, honors of all kind, but my favorite uh, honor Kurt Vonnegut ever got, and what I kind of think might be his favorite as well, is uh, just a few years ago, uh, he officially had a crater on Mercury named after him, and I thought that was really cool, um, and it seemed like something he would really greatly appreciate as some kind of like, you know, timeless big thing, though he probably would have made jokes about how can we name a crater on Mercury, but um, that stood out to me. So yeah, that's that's the life of Kurt Vonnegut Jr. I know I just went through it really quickly, and I know the listeners are probably sick of hearing my voice. So, uh, Josh, Trent, y'all, uh, wh wh what are y'all thinking? What are your responses? And do you have anything you want to uh, pad my uh, my monologue there with? I'm thinking the Vonnegut Creator would be a great uh, would be a great location for a Patreon episode. The Vonnegut Creator, <laughs> like yeah. we're gonna go to the Vonnegut Creator. Yeah, let's go to Mercury. You know, celebrate the hundredth episode. Okay, well. If we have enough patrons to fund that by then, then we do not considering we don't even have a Patreon now. We'll figure impressive. it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I know, I was, Trent, what do you think? I was going to say one thing that I found very interesting uh, biographically is is uh, my grandparents, obviously, like many other grandparents, watch quite a bit of Fox. And yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the people, I don't know if I've told you this before, Jacob, but one of the uh, one of the people on Fox who makes a lot of reoccurring uh, visits there is Geraldo Rivera. Mm -hmm. um, and you guys might notice him from his his very profound mustache oh, yeah. um, and a lot of like, you know, like uh, ironic left wing Twitter accounts use him as their profile picture. Sure. And he was married uh, to Kurt Vonnegut's daughter. And he constantly on I've multiple times I heard him on like the five Fox's five be like, oh, yeah. And, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, he was he was my uh, my father in law for a time. And uh, I I, th I couldn't believe it. So I looked it up and the, <laughs> the, what I found when I looked up his connection is uh, apparently he was an absolute scumbag to Kurt's daughter. And mm. uh, Kurt's quoted as saying. He's obviously a scumbag because he started making love to other people and betraying my daughter and her innocence from the very beginning. If I see Jerry again, I will spit in his face. And, wow. But yet he goes on Fox all the time and he's like, I just, I love me. I love me some Kurt Vonnegut. That man wow. and I were so close. So. Oh God. What a clout chasing. Yeah. I know, but I, I, I love it. Um, I just, you know, it, it is really sad. It is hard. Um, for me reading some of the, his stuff to, to like see where the uh, irony in Vonnegut's writing ends and like what, what's real, you know? 
um because he puts so much of himself into yeah. his writings i think it's um you know one of the things that's really stuck with me with vonnegut i think it's what breakfast of champions where he literally like finds himself on the street in his book and just scares him <laughs> yeah like but and but like you know you just giving the biography i mean so much of his personality seeps into his writing um like there's little things that, that you'll find that vonnegut is is kind of like really into or likes to include in his book um car dealerships i i, I just picked that up because i never knew that but there's a few of his books where car yeah. dealerships and the ownership of car dealerships are put in and it i had no idea up, yeah yeah so it, it is kind of interesting um just how much of his personality and self comes in here even when his books are late and failing cars he likes cars yeah. that like mess up i mean like it even kills uh billy's wife in this book but like exactly and the sob was according to him a terrible car he hated he hated the car and he thought it was terribly designed and he was like just couldn't believe that he had gone in on this dealership um <laughs> and he was a terrible salesman and he was like yeah he didn't want to sell anyone anything but he was like just had no idea why he did it like yeah. very you know he he is fascinating guy also Trent I appreciate you mentioning the like irony thing because he actually in Man Without a Country his memoir says uh says it seems like no one can tell when I'm joking or not so from now on everything I write if I ever tell a joke I'll put I'm joking after it and for like <laughs> in the remainder of the chapter every time he tells a joke he says I'm joking after it and it's like there's like 50 times he says I'm joking in that's like 10 so pages. great <laughs> it's just ma- just massive shouting out to his haters it's very funny mm. uh and he even has a part where he's just like, you should join the National Guard in the military. I'm joking. Al-Qaeda is a threat. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> such unadulterated bitterness and, and, uh, and completely earned, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the same book where he also is like talks about uh, like he's like, people are mad at me for being a socialist because of Stalin and China. I don't care. Like, he just says, <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. Like that's just his like, that's his response to it. It's like, very just you know he's he's on his he's I, on his old man shit for sure and i and i definitely wondered for i mean it was you know we're about to get into it but for those who haven't read um you know Kurt Vonnegut is not the main character by any means in the story but him as like himself is a minor multiple time reappearing character who usually says like one line mm-hmm. and then just kind of disappears and I, and you know i wonder between that and um, like some of the names, like uh, Edgar uh, Derby, who's a, who's a more major character than himself in the story, about like how real were these people? How real were these? You know what I mean? Like how much of this came from yeah. Vonnegut's own tragic experiences in yeah. the war? He, um, you have to think some of it did. There is there is some. I mean, because the book itself is semi autobiographical, so yeah, you know, people people that he met doubtless informed aspects of these people of these characters. Oh, yeah. He um he's actually the even the character the character of him shows up for one like actual Vonnegut shows up for one line in the mm-hmm. uh, movie. And it's just this like scrawny curly headed kid who says who says uh, as they pull up to Dresden, it looks like the land of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's just the most wretched looking guy you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> it's, <a little> <laughs> urchin. Supposed to, it's supposed to be Vonnegut. It's pretty funny. Um, which he said it, he called the movie perfect and flawless, which I actually disagree with. But so, like, you know, he must have thought he probably got a kick out of that. But, um, you know, we've I think we've we've talked about that pretty thoroughly. So let's get into his most famous work. Um, um, you know, some say his best, some don't. That's not really what we're here to decide. But uh, Slaughterhouse Five, 
which I, I found to be, I mean, as I found before, a fantastic book. Um, definitely very strange. Uh, very, I don't know if dense is even the right word, but there is a lot to say about it. So where do we want to start with this? Well, there's a lot to, I mean, there's a lot to parse in it, right? Because I can see why some people would call it dense because, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, it's difficult if you've read it through beginning to end to sort of understand what has ju- what you've just kind of um, what you've just kind of gone through. I myself am uh, still kind of putting it together in my head, mm. um, and that's because it's told out of order. You know, it's told non-linearly, and there's a reason for that, of course. Um, um, and I mean, I think- even the first the first like paragraph says all this happened more or less. Yes. So even then, it's like. How much of it happened? Question mark. Mm-hmm. No. Well, and and the thing of it is, I think that I think part of there's a certain intentionality there, right? Because this is you know our protagonist Billy Pilgrim, right? This is you know to jump ahead a little bit. This is a guy who drifts around in time and experiences different moments of his life, and it's and it becomes more about what you drill down and uh, and uh, cling to than I think about establishing a a direct uh, beginning to end sort of. Um, sort of uh uh line Mm. no yo for sure i mean like yeah that that is the general conceit of the novel is that there's a guy named billy pilgrim he's unstuck in time so he's experiencing his life out of order he has no control over what happens he's not uh making different decisions every time he's not you know he's not doing a groundhog day situation it is like he's just re-experiences the same events on a loop eternally um except it's in in it's just completely uh, discombobulated. It's here, there. So he's in World War II one day. He's at a meeting the other day, the next day. He's on an alien planet the next. He's having sex the next. He's just in one second to the next. It's just shifting between time. So, of course, it takes a bit for us to get the sort of full picture of everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, indeed, there is a lot that happens. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird ride of a plot, no doubt. I don't know. What do, what do you think, Trent? Well, I was going to say, for one, there is a point in the book where he literally describes. So as we're about to get into, you know, there's the one of the main things in this book is this alien race called the Tralfalmadorians, mm-hmm. and uh, which are also in the Vonnegut verse. Multiple yes. appearances. Sirens of Titan. Um, exactly. And, uh, you know, they're talking about the way they write books because they perceive time as just kind of like everything concurrently happening. Mm-hmm. And the way that he describes the way they write books is literally how Vonnegut has attempted to write this, which is just mm-hmm. all of the events, all of the events that are selected for the book that tell a story, but are like not in any sort of consecutive um, setup, just all at once happening simultaneously. Um, and I just, I, I do like the approach to storytelling. I think uh, Vonnegut definitely eases you in by um, like talking and looking straight into the camera at the beginning of the book, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, hey, here's why I wrote this book kind of. I mean, it's something that uh, Vonnegut is definitely not afraid to look into the camera in some of his other books, but I, I think he does it um, a little more serious here just because of like, I guess, probably how important this book was to him and the subject matter yeah yeah exactly so this is his big anti-war book i mean um or this is his big war book in general um you know the first chapter is um just him talking about his writing process and how long it took him to write the book um and how he originally and he actually touches on this again in his memoir how he originally did have an idea to make the the uh focus more so be about 
World War II and the grand struggle and his man's place in history and all that. And mm -hmm. then he said when he met with, uh, you know, the wife of one of his old war buddies and she said, you were just kids. And he decided to call the book Slaughterhouse-Five or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. Um, and because, you know, they were just kids. And there's even a part in the book that says by the time he got to the war, all the real soldiers had died. Um, uh, which is, you know, it's it's very dark, but like the idea of like there was just he was so young and uh and this book is able to take that story that he actually lived through and uh and um you know tell it and it's interesting it's telling it in this very I mean at times even wacky way. I mean you have aliens called Tralfamadorians in his semi-autobiographical novel about one of the biggest slaughters in European history that he personally mm. witnessed. It, it, it's a thing I say repeatedly is it shouldn't work, but it does, you know? Um, uh, actually, uh, Michael Crichton, who uh, wrote Jurassic Park, who we talked about, had a review of Slaughterhouse-Five where he says the same thing, uh, where he wrote that there's just not, this isn't a thing that should function as a novel. It just happens to. Yeah, yeah, that was one of his. That was one of his early, um, early successes that he made a name for himself with was his critique of uh, Slaughterhouse. Yeah, and I think I think part of the reason that it works is because the Tralfamadorians themselves aren't really, um, you know, obviously they they take Billy Pilgrim and they um, and they bring him to their world and you know he's he's uh, imprisoned there for a time, but they're not obviously. really they're not really relevant to the um to the overall uh progression outside of that like you it's could it's relevant to how they how you understand billy's life like the philosophy yes. of the book exactly and, ha plot. and how you're supposed and how you're supposed to sort of uh to read and understand it in the first place they're they're, they're uh, so they're more of a they're more of a frame than um than um something to be taken literally i mean you know sure um, sure not not that you shouldn't take them literally but um you know what I'm trying to say here? No, no, no. Yeah. I got, I got you. Definitely. And I'm, what I'm very interested for Jacob is, is how the hell you're going to explain this plot. Oh, um, oh, I've got, I, 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've got the plot. I'm, I wanted to see how Wikipedia did it, so I pulled it up. Um, I was interested to see. Oh yeah, uh, Wikipedia just says, oh, this is just chronological events. Like the, <laughs> it doesn't jump around. That's maybe the right way of doing it, but that is yeah. boring. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it basically to give the overview, um. We can we can do that um, to give like a general overview is the book like sort of, you know, obviously it, it starts as all good stories do, which is as Kurt Vonnegut looking at the camera telling you uh, what the book's about. But, uh, you know, from there, it has Billy Pilgrim being unstuck in time and you have this tapestry of his life that generally goes from young guy who becomes a chaplain in the military, who becomes a prisoner of war who witnesses the firebombing of Dresden and barely survives to moves back home, has a mental breakdown, overcomes the mental breakdown, becomes an optometrist, um, gets in a plane crash where uh, a lot of people around him die, including his father-in-law and his wife uh, dies uh, in an accident thinking he's dead. He gets kidnapped by aliens where he learns where he lives in a zoo with a porn star named Montana Wildhack is sent back to earth um, and then basically tells everyone uh, that he's learned that time is actually just completely unordered and, uh, and fixed like uh, it's, it's fixed. And they're in most, you know, uh, more enlightened beings could see all of time. And it, you know, and, and at the end of his life, he uh, has become a semi-famous speaker talking about the, uh, 
the the ephemerality of time when he is assassinated by an old war buddy of his by the name of Paul Lazaro with a laser gun um, while standing in front of a crowd um, in one of the uh, Balkanized in midst the Balkanized United States. Um, yeah. And if that sounds like I'm making it up, I'm not. I literally, <laughs> I literally in my notes, I've, I have like just only if like, you know, maybe 10 lines of notes. And one of them is just China wins America Balkanized. <laughs> <laughs> That is the overview. That's that. I mean, that's, I think back in 2020, yeah, back in 2020, when, when you and I both read this, Jacob, I think around that time, our friend group made a lot of jokes about balkanization and now more and more, that seems to be an actual (laughs) plausible, plausible direction for this country. So more and more people are, more and more people are saying that. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The future will be like Vonnegut was right. Vonnegut was right. We all are unstuck in time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but we can go into the, what what part of y'all, you know, if this is a tapestry, what part of the tapestry do we want to examine first? Let's just do it like that. Joss, boy. you make the call. Go oh, for it. Oh, boy. Well, you on um, the spot. I think the... I mean, we've I think we, we, we've we've gone into enough detail about the first um, the first uh, chapter of it is basically, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, his life, his writing process. And then he's and he he ends chapter one with. Um, uh, I do I do like his um, I had a, I had a, I had a hard time picking a really a really uh, favorite kind of extract, but I think the way he ends part one is mine if I can get that. Yeah, read, way right yeah here. go ahead and read the quote it has because it has something to do with um with how i'm looking at it right uh uh da, 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 da. i looked through the gideon bible in my hotel room for tales of great destruction the sun was risen upon the earth when lot entered into zoar i read then the lord rained upon sodom and upon gomorrah brimstone and fire from the lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground so it goes those were vile people in both those cities, as is well known. The world was better off without them. And Lot's wife, of course, was told not to look back where all those people in their homes had been. But she did look back. And I love her for that because it was so human. She was turned to a pillar of salt. So it goes. People aren't supposed to look back. I'm certainly not going to do it anymore. I've finished my war book now. The next one I write is going to be fun. This one is a failure. It had to be since it was written by a pillar of salt. It begins like this. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. It ends like this. Pooty wheat. And, you know, that right there, again, there's the the parallel that I stumbled across that I think we can start with is how he says listen. Because mm. um, I've seen because I've seen that compared to um, Beowulf pretty much begins the same way, right? With the storyteller saying, hey, listen, this is this is how the story is. And this is what happened. And then drilling down into it. Right. So. It's a, you know, right off the bat, it's somebody making sense of something that, um, you know, like a legend that's been told for hundreds and hundreds of years has had details lost in the telling and is is necessarily fragmented. You know, and I think, you know, you know, the you know how it starts and you know how it ends and what's in the middle is something that is things objectively happened but facts are different from truth and the truth that people know is something that they're assembling every day you mm-hmm. know so i so that gets the that gets it rolling uh, novel is a failure and it has to be I love that. yes in terms in terms of, of laying down you know objectively what is yeah exactly 
and interestingly enough, he says the next one's going to be fun. The next one is Breakfast of Champions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is a novel about like suicide and like repressed LGBT fears and death and the end of the mm-hmm. world. And, and Kilgore Trout <laughs> is a main character walking around like uh, having an existential crisis. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and, oh, man, that's that's hilarious. Well, yeah. And, and I, I totally agree with you, Joss. I mean, I think, you know, I didn't analyze uh him saying listen other than just like loving the way that that impacted like it just worked for me without much thought Mm -hmm. Um, but i totally agree that it really it really reinforces this idea of like vonnegut is talking to you and he's telling you a story and it's going to be fucking crazy i'm not sure if i can curse on this podcast you can curse okay (laughs) go ahead Um, but uh literally you know it's just he he's you know he's just finished with this talking to the camera bit and you know he establishes himself as this narrator telling the story and and throughout again he he reestablishes it is it is vonnegut is the narrator here because he continuously mm-hmm. says me and my buddy what's his name like o'hare yeah um so my like word buddy yeah yeah so i mean it it, it really i think works very well with the idea of like like beowulf someone's telling you a story you're having mm. a a verbal exchange with Vonnegut. Right. And um, it's also notable that the listen also comes from, um, uh, it's also, it also comes from a sort of a biblical thing because Vonnegut says, you know, repeatedly in his writings that he, uh, you know, he does pull from the Bible a lot, despite being not just not a Christian, but also fairly anti-Christian. Um, he, and, and he even says so in his uh, memoir that he says he sees Jesus Christ as the greatest uh, greatest human being to ever live, right? He said Jesus Christ and Mark Twain are the two greatest human beings to ever live. And mm-hmm. he's and Jesus has a repeated refrain that Vonnegut loves. That is, he who has ears, let him hear. Um, and it's when he's about to say something really important. And I think that there's in in him, you know, uh, and I feel and I feel that coming through as well. That like, if you've got ears, listen. It, it, I, I'm also feeling that because Vonnegut talks about how. The Bible is so important for him in writing, um, which like he's got some very complicated feelings about, um, and other books flesh it out more than this one. But um, I, that it, the listen refrain also makes me think of that. But yeah, it's this direct address. It's like, it's like okay, you may have zoned that out, but listen, listen to this, you know. And well, it's and as well as the um, the the putiweet as well, you know. Yeah, it's it, it's you know to me because you're because you're absolutely you're absolutely right you know the the address the directness the um the you know telling you that this is this is important and you need to draw a lesson from it, but the way that it you know the way that it ends is 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 with you know the the most meaningless uh, you know the most meaningless phrase possible right and it's you a know, question how... mark too right putiweet question mark am I exactly am I right yeah putiweet yeah putiweet question mark it's a question. You know, it's yeah. yeah it's 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 a bird that can't comprehend you know the enormity of 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 um of what has just happened so you know you know take 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 from this what you will but also don't uh, don't treat it as gospel right as how I'm as how I'm uh, reading that that contrast. And I, I think this is also a really good point to put in for someone who hasn't read um, from the passage that, that Josh shared is, is this concept of like, so it goes, which was like, you know, we talked about that earlier with James Franco. Um, but like, he says this every time in the book that a character dies or a multitude of character dies. And essentially it's, it's Vonnegut, um, his characters, the Trafalgar, I'm going to mismatch this every time, the Trafalgarians or whatever, um, they, you know, can't conceive of death the same way we do. It's just kind of like a state of being. 
and uh, something they say about people who have passed or you know have died next to them since it's not something really serious to them because they're still living in a time is they say so it goes so throughout the whole book I mean that's the first time I read this that's the one thing that stuck with me is Vonnegut anytime someone in this book dies something bad happens it's so it goes every time yeah, the, there's a one point where it says the champagne had gone flat so it goes yeah exactly. yeah the, the the he's it's you know it's grave but also ironic but also there's a you know irony and humor in, in it which you know given what he goes through you know you have to find such moments and it's interesting because it also equates something like champagne or a bug being stepped on to the fire bombing of Dresden. They're both a so it goes, you mm-hmm. know, uh, they're both they get given this equal weight by this refrain, which is very interesting. And of course, it's just a it's also just like a great structural thing. Just as a writer, it's a very it's just a very effective device to use. Yes. Um, but yeah. Um, so the the the. World War II is very much the crux of this book because that's the, you know, that's the autobiographical part. And uh, so, yeah, to talk about that a little bit, um, to talk about the uh, World War II part of the novel, you know, it's the same thing Vonnegut experienced, which is his his uh, his squad being scattered after the Battle of the Bulge. And, you know, Billy Pilgrim, our main character, was just this thin, awkward, weird, gangly guy who says, um, a lot. He's a chaplain's assistant in the U.S. Army. Um, he's like super fatalistic. He's super, uh, you know, he's just like, go on without me, really ready to die. Um, but he meets uh, a couple scouts and a guy by the name of Roland Weary, who's like just this. This is like kind of a bully of a man, a big, a big, uh, just a big, I don't know, chud looking guy that really likes to beat people up and mistreat people. And then the scouts who uh, Roland Weary thinks are his friends. There's a lot of delusion in this book, especially in the wartime. Uh, one of the first delusions we come across is in Roland Weary's mind. Him and the scouts are best friends and he calls them themselves. He calls him and those two the three musketeers, and he has this vision of them getting like medals of honor and being best friends till they die. And of course, the scouts at the first possible opportunity ditch him, just like leave him to die. Um, and that's one of like many delusions in this book. But it's it's like it's funny, but man, it's really sad too. Yeah, and uh, to die of his feet too. Yes, and that is how he dies. He dies because he loses his loses his boots and his feet get all mangled up and you know he's getting frostbite and 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 gangrenous and and all and he's just really gets all jacked up but yeah they 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 get captured by the germans because they're not particularly competent because as i said later all the real soldiers are already dead you know they're uh when they get captured billy's just like yeah that's that's fine man i don't care just take me to take me to prison put me on a train whatever and 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 they do you know they get loaded up onto they get loaded up onto trains with all sorts of characters like a like a hobo who says oh this is about the hobo yeah the hobo is like this isn't bad i've seen real cold you know he dies of the cold but the last thing he's died is i've not seen anything you see a a colonel named wild bob who says or the colonel and, and he's just like uh and he's just like, yeah, you know, boys, we gave him hell or whatever. If you're ever in my hometown, ask for Wild Bob, and you know he dies. And like, you've got Paul Lazaro, is just this freaky little guy who likes to take revenge on people, um, who um, swears revenge on Billy for Roland Weary's death. Um, and he's like, just says, uh, you know, one of these days, Billy, you're gonna open your door, and I'm gonna shoot your pecker off, and like, just just weird guys, like, are all lumped together on a train, really dispelling the myth of this just honorable assortment of heroes fighting this grandiose battle when you get down to the the granular level it's just some guys and really just 
some real freaks for the most part. Yeah. You know? And I, I would definitely say that, again, this is one of those things like going back to earlier where like you really wonder, at least, or I did reading this, like how much of this is real because mm. something about these characters stand out different to me. I mean, like uh, I think Vonnegut is really good at writing characters that, that stick into your mind, but they're usually, I wouldn't say like one note or one directional. Cause I think that doesn't give Kurt Vonnegut the like credit, but he makes these characters that are so, like ridiculous and, mm. and you know, over the top and these characters despite being very silly and like the thing with wild bob like i don't, something about them strikes me as being very real as being characters that like he met i mean um you know his buddy that we were talking about that was having the delusions um something about how you know kurt creates these characters that are so complicated and this guy's yes he's a bully he's an asshole but you know Vonnegut makes sure to point out like it's because of this feeling of like loneliness and that he always kind of had this feeling of being dejected and he creates this very human very real character and then it's like bam he's dead <laughs> you know what I mean like and he does that you know quite a few times um and it's just you know these people have the the scent of being real or at least made up of real people and I mean we're gonna I want to talk a lot about Edgar Derby later but I mean that's someone who to me the most I think is you know, I, I think he is real. I mean, in, when Kurt's talking to the camera in the first chapter, he's talking about Edgar Derby. So I think that is his real name. Yeah. And um, Edgar Derby is a school teacher who joined up in the military because he felt like he needed to fight, even though he's much older than these other guys. And he's a guy who's in good shape and he's uh, and, you know, he's responsible and he's, you know, kind of sees himself as a he sees himself as a leader and he becomes a de facto leader of this sort of bunch and he's the guy who you know from the beginning is doomed to die not in the bombing of dresden but in the aftermath because he picks up a teapot um and is accused of looting and uh is shot uh shot and killed and it's like a pretty a pretty meaningless death like who knows what became of the teapot in the movie the soldiers pick up the teapot and then throw it to the side and it breaks after they shoot him that's Um, fantastic and they might as well Mm -hmm. you know in the book you know that that's kind of what happens yeah, I, I that was one of the, the main things I was wondering when I was rereading this, if like what would stick out to me and what really stuck out to me. And this is like the only thing that I wrote down that I wanted to like read specifically the passage from really quickly. Yeah, do it. Do um, it. Was was Edgar Derby as a character? Because when he's talking to uh, O'Hare at the beginning of the story, when he's himself, Kurt Vonnegut, um, he's talking to him about how he'd like to write the book. And, and, you know, it seems like O'Hare is very much like tuned out, like he does not want to engage understandably and um he's just kind of like not trying to really be involved too much and um vani gets talking about this and he says i think the climax of the book will be the execution of poor old edgar derby and throughout the whole book i think you know vonnegut very rarely writes these like heroic great seeming perfect men but like i think edgar Der- i mean he he obviously whoever if it whether the guy really was edgar derby and this is like a real carbon copy or if this is just something close to an approximation of a man he knows who this happened to like this is someone that vonnegut clearly looks up to like he he very much so seems to respect him he seems to be the most serious um he gets along with people well he's described as being more like manly you know he's more masculine he's he's got a lot going on for him but what the whole book i was i was trying to remember i was like okay well when does when does the execution happen when does the execution happen it is at the very end of the book and just and just a short paragraph i mean there's i mean he spends like tons of paragraphs talking about (laughs) 
you know, like how the Trafalgarians like per, like perceive this or that. But when he's talking about at the beginning of the book, he says this is going to be the you know the the, the climax. This is going to be the crux. And when he actually describes Edgar Derby dying, he just says. Um, talking about walking around in Dresden after he says something in there, the somewhere in there, the poor old high school teacher, Edgar Derby was caught with a teapot. He had taken from the catacombs. He was arrested for plundering. He was tried and shot. So it goes like, that's it. That's, you know what yeah. I mean? That whole scene. Of him, right? And it, <laughs> and it the, honestly, uh, climax. yeah, exactly. But it's like, there's, there's no build up to that. Like that's, that's literally the preceding the last page, at least on my book. And to me, it's just like, I think Edgar became so real in this book to Vonnegut and so much of like, I mean, whether that was the guy's name and that was really him or like whoever this was that Vonnegut was getting close to. Um, like, I think it became very hard for him to like, you know, talk about him dying. Like, it seems like at the end of the book, he's just like, I have to include this. This is, you know, this is, this was supposed to be a, a central part of it. I mean, but he, he spends very few details describing his death. And I found that really fascinating on my second read through. Yeah. Well, and Jacob, you know, you, 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 you warned me when I told you, okay, I'm halfway through chapter nine, right? You warned me. Oh, well, it ends quite suddenly just, uh, and yeah, sure enough. So, you know, to, to kill off somebody in, in, you know, such that in such that uh, sudden way after, you know, as you said, Trent, you know, building them up for the uh, whole book, like it's, you know, um, you get a sense of how that must have hit, uh, you, you get a sense of how that must have hit Vonnegut, right? Because it's, you know, there's no, there's no fanfare, right? There's no, there's no way to prepare for these things. You know, you just, you just get a call one day. Oh, this happened. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, um, it, it, it's, uh, and of course, notably it's, it's in the aftermath of the bombing of Dresden and the bombing of Dresden does have such an impact. I mean, mm -hmm. and it is this event, um, where, you know, this whole town is leveled of over a hundred thousand people, um, by incendiaries. Um, and it isn't, not a particularly military target and it is, you know, they're not producing military equipment. There's not a lot of soldiers there. It's this beautiful city, one of the oldest cities in Europe, um, you know, I, I took a class in, in college where I was reading a lot of like Germanic folklore and like and stuff. And like even Dresden is even referenced in like 500 year old stories and stuff like that. Um, the, you know, these old tales. It's this old place is, and, and, and it, it's completely destroyed. Um, and it, it takes on and, and he describes this walking on it, like walking on the surface of the moon and all living things have been destroyed. So all death in the aftermath of it can hardly feel uh, monumental. You know, it can hardly feel huge for there to be what is another death and on the surface of the moon where no life should be in the first place, where the fact that they were alive is just because they happen to be hidden in Slaughterhouse 5 um, underneath the city. And it really is, is is just by chance that they made it. So it also has that element to it. So it is it's it's hard to build up to. And, and ultimately, Vonnegut just kind of doesn't. And it trusts the reader to have give you to give that input. And there's a lot of trust that goes into the reader in this book because Vonnegut doesn't, um, you know, it's not particularly long and Vonnegut doesn't, he has moments where he tells you everything he thinks, but he also has moments where there's a lot you just need to infer and a lot you need to feel and a lot you need to sit with. And that's one thing I just like super appreciate about Vonnegut in general. And I especially appreciate about this book. Um, and of course, it, it, the anti-war themes in general, and we'll talk a little more interesting because, you know, Vonnegut even afterwards doesn't, he doesn't hold the position that World War II was a wrong war to fight. You know, he 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 like even in his memoir says like, yeah, we needed to fight the Nazis. They were the Nazis. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's this isn't a book saying, wow, I can't believe we were over there. Like if there's any war, he was start staunchly anti-Vietnam, staunchly anti-Iraq. He actually has a nuanced position on World War II because of what it was. Uh, and that makes it all the more uh, weird to sit with. He even has a passage where a guy was like, well, yeah, you know, well, you know about the the candle wax that was made out of Jewish bodies. You know about this. And he's like, yeah, I, I know, um, you know, they, they were Nazis. Uh, it's uh, it, it leaves the reader with complicated feelings as well, and it's not going to hand you an answer outside of "Wow, this is horrible." Oh yeah, uh, and it's you know? and it's it's and it's uh, it's complicated as well by because um, I was I was reading about this uh, in the lead up to this the um, so the figure that he quotes for the Dresden firebombing is one hundred and thirty five thousand casualties. Um, and since then, it's um, you know now you know now today um, the the general the general understanding of it is that so it's a wild it's a wild exaggeration. It overshoots it by about a hundred thousand, like like the um, like anywhere from like the mid twenties to uh, thirty five thousand is at the highest. I think is is what uh, is what's settled now. But Vonnegut was confronted with that information a little bit later in life, you know, and his response is, "What does it matter?" The numbers, the numbers are not in question. It's the impact on some on somebody who's uh, who's come un- who's come unstuck from uh, time and keeps and keeps bouncing back to that, right? Mm-hmm. Because because living through something like that, I, I imagine has to um, you know it has to distort your perception of time because there's never um, there's never a moment where some part of you isn't still there in that slaughterhouse. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Come back next week for part two of Slaughterhouse 5.